Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, to Psalm 139. This morning, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, and probably, even if you didn't hear it last week, probably picked up by now, it's going to be more of an unusual sermon uh, for us as a church. So like we, we do every week, right, we, we gather to to sing and to fellowship and to experience God's gifts and care and, and to just minister to one another and to receive ministry from God, to hear from God's word, to, to fellowship uh, and to worship and to praise. And, to, and so all the reasons we normally gather to magnify the Lord together and to be refreshed in the Lord, to go out on our mission together is, is no different. But different topically this morning and a little bit different approach this morning than what we normally do as you no, we normally, we, we go through a book of the Bible at a time, so right now we're, you know, um, we're almost halfway done the book of Luke, uh, but we go through a book uh, of scripture one at a time and a passage one at a time and draw out and, and see the application and the topics as we go through, as we go through the passage in front of us, as we just go through the next passage, that really allow, that is what determines our application and that is what determines what we are talking about. But this morning, we're, going to go th- we're still going to go through a passage of Scripture, but I've decided ahead of time, in a sense, the, the, the topic to talk about, and we want to talk about defending the dignity of human life. So many churches recognize this week as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's in part a response to the Supreme Court's decision on January 21st, 1973, to legalize abortion in the United States. And though that decision about 18 months ago was overturned, as you know, abortion is still legal and accessible in most of the nation. But the legality of abortion is not really the main point that I want to address this morning. The title of this morning's passage is Defending Dignity. I want to look at, take a closer look at our call to defend the dignity of human life and how to protect the most vulnerable. Now, just from the outset, this is... The, the categories I'm going to touch on this morning have, have far-reaching implications. We're just going to scratch the surface on any of them. And they, they, they apply to, to many different areas of life. We could take the same applications and apply these uh, across the board to, to many other areas. How do we care for those with special needs? How do we think about the historically disadvantaged and human trafficking and criminal justice reform and race and immigration and single moms and elderly? And how do we think about the process of aging and, and on and on? So, so the categories would overlap, but this morning I want to look primarily at the issue of abortion and how do we respond to this. It is without any doubt one of the largest moral failings as, that we have as a nation, and I believe the church must speak with a clear voice on this topic. But it's a voice I think we must speak, not dictated by political terms or led by politicians but led by the ethic of Jesus Christ and by Scripture. Jesus, who is holiness himself and who calls us to walk in holiness, yet, and who calls us to walk in righteousness, yet also calls us to defend the vulnerable and to run after the broken and the scared and who is one who drew sinners to himself and who spared no words for those who would stand in self-righteous judgment. So I think when we see this book clearly, we have reason to be heartbroken on this issue. I think we have reason to be hopeful on this issue, to see sin as tragic and Christ as triumphant. And so that's what we want to talk about 
this morning. So with that, we're going to read Psalm 139. So I'm going to ask if you're able, if you could stand as we read Psalm 139 together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light, is a, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are, to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, you may be seated. Okay, this is just one of these passages, again, for the outset. Uh, it's a little bit different than the message this morning again. So this is, this is just a passage so rich and so full of so many themes, right? We see his omnipresence in this passage clearly, that there, we can never be in a place where God is not, that in our sin we can never hide from God. In our fear, he could not be any nearer to us. We see his sovereign control over life and over not just the universe, but really all over the affair, every affair of human life. We see his sovereign control. And we see his personal forming, intentionally crafting and creating you, creating me and, and all of us are made personally by God. But for all the themes present that we see in this passage, I want to I use it to really narrow our view to talk about the defense and the dignity of human life. And we really want to just use this as, as a springboard to, to, to a couple of themes that we want to talk about in this regard. Because this passage is clear that God forms us. Before our birth, we have been made in His image. And where the sanctity of life is under assault, let His people defend. It is our honor to defend. And so I want to talk about four mindsets that we must have on this issue. So let me just say, again, these, these four things, these four mindsets we need to have, these four areas we need to keep in mind. I think each of these, again, could be sermons. We're only going to touch on them briefly, but hopefully to give us categories to consider and to pray about individually and together as a church. So four mindsets that I think should help govern our calling on this issue. 
Number one is clarity. We must look to Scripture to find clarity on this issue, to find moral clarity and clarity of our call. Human life is sacred. Genesis 1, 26 declares, and over and over, Scripture reaffirms, mankind, every person, is made in the image of God. So much of our ethics is because we are made in the image of God. We, right, so much of our ethics is that we aren't animals, right? We, we have pet birds. You guys know that. Like, we're not like our pet birds. We are categorically different than animals. Scripture is clear over and over. It is evil to unjustly take the life of another. And so we must defend the most vulnerable. Biblical ethics is deeply rooted in our nature as image bearers. Right? We are called not to murder, not because that person loves God or one day might love God, but because they are a person made in the image of God. And our passage here clearly shows and life begins before birth. God knits us inside the mother's womb. He sovereignly ordains our days even before they started. We see this again elsewhere in Scripture, even in the book of Luke that we've been reading, right? We see in, in, in a few examples, right? Jesus and John were, were talked of as alive, as in the womb. But many other examples, right? Psalm 51, David is talking about his sin, and he says he is sinful from the time of his conception, indicating that his humanity and his inherited sin nature are from the womb, are from the moment he, he was conceived. Scripture speaks of people and every individual person as known and created by God, who is the giver of life, and we, that man is made in his image before birth while still in the womb. And though the fall brought a curse and it marred our image as, it marred our appearance as image bearers, it did not remove it. The fall did not remove dignity or our call to defend. In fact, the fall is the reason why we must defend because ever since the fall, people have been dehumanized. And so science, to be clear, science can verify this, but and I believe it does verify that life begins before birth. But we are not under the wisdom of scientists on this. We are under the authority of the word. And the unjust and intentional taking of a human life at any stage is wrong, and it is sin. And it doesn't just harm the person, the one who is sinned against. It harms all the people who sinned, all, who, all the parties who participate. It harms. That's what Sin does. Even corrodes a nation. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And sadly, this is prevalent in our day, but it's not just that it's common, it's even celebrated at times. Not only is it common that laws would allow this, most of these laws would be considered popular according to most polls. And some of the numbers are just staggering. So the last year we had reliable data available to us is the year 2020, and it would show between 750,000 
and 950,000 abortions took place in America. Sadly, it's hard to believe that we did not leave the world in this. And to say this as well, 98% of these deaths were a, a factor was not health complications for the mother. The majority of these, 86%, were to unwed mothers, the majority of whom were black or Hispanic. I don't need to take any personal responsibility away from a mother or a father to simply note statistics would indicate that our enemy is targeting a particular generation with lies and hatred, that he is targeting vulnerable communities, those who have been historically disadvantaged in black and Hispanic communities. He is targeting fatherless girls. He is targeting those with disability and special needs. They are under a particular threat and are vulnerable. It is not uncommon for doctors to promote abortion for special needs children before they are born. I don't think I need to tell anyone here the beauty that special needs individuals have in a community and the fact that they are a gift. So we can, we, we can speak of sin and we must speak of sin and we can speak of it without speaking self-righteously and we must. We can speak of defending dignity without painting ourselves as the hero in the story. And we must. And if it breaks our hearts and to hear numbers, and, and it should, what must it be like to be our sovereign God who not only knows the statistics, but every person, because he created them, and he formed them, and he made them in his image, and watches as they are destroyed. So we must be clear on the dignity of human life, and we must be clear on the seriousness of sin. Secondly, I think we must have courage. So it will take courage for us to defend the vulnerable, to stand with what is politically unpopular, to stand with what is often culturally unpopular, to stand up and speak out on issues that make us culturally uncomfortable. That requires courage, and we must have it, and we must use it. But can I, can I also say this, that I think culturally we need a countercultural courage. We need a, a, a courage that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce in a people, not one that, that, that politicians can create. And, and here's what I mean. I think we must, we must have courage to be willing to be unpopular in multiple circles at once. See, honestly, here's the thing. I think sometimes we, we think of courage as just, as just saying things loudly that happen to be true. But honestly, courage from a keyboard or from posting something on Facebook or taking a private stand in a voting booth isn't the courage that I think we primarily need in the moment around us, and it certainly can't be all we do. I think we need a countercultural courage that chooses to view this issue through a fuller lens, not one framed by culture, that, but though, though that one, or, but, but, but that sees that, yes, sin is sin, and let's stand up, 
but also views to view this as who's the loudest voice on the other side. Well, that's really who we're arguing against. That we might have to be unpopular in that one camp, find that we might be more that we might be unpopular in, in, in more than one camp at any one time because we, we choose to not narrow how we define this issue and who's really and what's really at stake and who really is leading the way in this. Here's what I mean. It may be, I think so so often, that the loudest voices in any argument are seen as the ones who are really dictating the terms. I think sometimes we we, we there's this argument against sort of the, these elites in Hollywoods who, who use their platform to callously talk of the unborn as a representative of, 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 of all or most who is really vulnerable. And I think we need to speak to the actual vulnerable around us. Now, abortions happen in, in every class and in every race and in every community, but the majority are to husbandless women and fatherless girls, the majority of whom are not old enough to rent a car. They are scared and they are vulnerable. And as those who are considering this, not, not just the perpetrators of sin, though some are, but they are victims of sin. And they don't need someone on the outside sitting in judgment. They need primarily someone coming beside them and seeing that their life matters. And we're going to talk some of this more in our next point, but we need to be people of courage who, who look at this issue not in self-righteousness, but coming beside those who need. Courage to say that we are all sinners. Courage to say that you are welcome at this church and you are welcome not once you've made your life right, but you are welcome as you are right now. Courage to go to communities that are unlike us in many ways. Courage to not have this issue framed by those that are reaching for power, but as those who are reaching out in love. Courage to view a person not through the sole prism of this issue or whether they have committed this act, but courage to stand in the hardest places and in the hardest moments. Courage to run and to stand with the fatherless courage and conviction to fight things like pornography, not just in legislation, but in our homes and our hearts, because, well, what happens in a culture that views sexual sin, se sexual sinful desires with no consequences coming from them? Courage to say that the church of Jesus Christ wants the broken, not because the broken need us, though the broken need Jesus, but because the broken by sin are the only ones who God uses. We need courage to be angry at sin, but to stand with sinners, and courage to sacrifice to the for the unborn, courage to speak in a way that communicates love and not hate, and courage to not argue with the loudest voice in the room and the ones in which we could get sort of our camp already to agree with us, but recognize as what we speak, we want, we, 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 that we want to speak in a way that values and never dehumanizes women. And who might be listening in to the way we speak and wonder if we're really for them. Culture doesn't want to speak with nuance on this issue. But I think we must. We need to have courage that when someone grows up in the church, someone grows up in this church who we have labored for 
and loved and prayed for, when we find that they're not immune to real sin with real consequences, do we have the courage to stand with them and for them, not by denying the reality of sin and its consequences, but do we have the courage to not stand with them and, and seek to hide it in shame or not speak of it? Do we have the courage to be a community that offers hope to sinners? It's not found in shame, but in Christ who takes our shame. Do, can we be a community of people that we're, we're, we're women who are courageous and speak up about their past and their lives that, that and, and the darkest moments in their lives can be open and vulnerable and safe here because of the way Christ transforms our story. Do we see that we are, are, are not immune as a people because of our ethics, but we are governed by, by Christ. And so let the church be, let Living Hope be a safe place for sinners not because we deny the reality of sin but because Christ transforms and governs how we see it let me just say that will take courage it takes real courage that if our reputation would be that this is a safe place for real sinners and sufferers see culture can say okay there's, there's good on one side politicians can say there's good here and there's, there's bad here we need courage to stand with victims of sin and those who are struggling with sinful decisions as a fellow sinner who daily struggles with sinful decisions. Third, we must have compassion. We must have clarity, must have courage, and we must have compassion. Here's what sin does. It destroys everything in its path destroys homes, it leaves many in its wake. I think when we think of this culture, primarily the way it's framed around us in culture, or politicians, we, we, we think of this issue primarily in ways of us and them. I think so often what, 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 what works in a political discussion or what works to sort of win online so often is, and, and th there's going to be some truth in this, right, is we, we, we get the caricature of the person, right, the hardened person holding up the sign in front of the Supreme Court, advocating, you know, for, for, for you know, some inane label of, of women's rights, you know, just some, some lie of what of all this, and we think of that angry person protesting, we say, okay, that's what this issue is really about, and it's them, and it's us, and that person is representative. And I think the truth is, and every number would indicate, that it's primarily women who are scared and who are vulnerable and who have been pressured and feeling that they have no hope and no support who have been being told that this is their best option. Many of them are participants of sin. Many of them are victims of sin. And now they bear the consequences of sin. So we need to have courage and clarity, but let us recognize that we must reach outward with compassion. If, if, it, if it's clear to us how, 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 how this is, how, what, what sin is, let, let our compassion equally be clear 
So, so some of this is, is through their own sin, some of it's through the sin of others, but, but whatever the, wherever they would be, let us, let us step out and, and help those and stand with those who are most vulnerable, who are facing this most difficult and painful decision with their life. Let us be those who reach out to them with compassion. Another statistic that I just find so heartbreaking. One in five pregnancies in the United States ends in abortion. It's as horrific as a number as I, as I could think. The overwhelming odds are that you know women who have done this or considered this or been pressured for this. Could have been one in this room who has been on either side of that, been pressured or pressured someone to. I don't think the majority of these women need to be convinced of brokenness and shame and despair and guilt. I think they need to know that hope is available and that healing is available and help for them as they make a courageous decision to bring a child to term at enormous cost and sacrifice. I think it takes courageous, it takes both courage and compassion to be someone was in that position and to come to be known by people around you and to, to, to come to a place to not hide but be known so let the church have a role just we read two weeks ago right the parable of the good Samaritan let our role be that we step into people's humanity and care and love and I believe we will person by person win with compassion towards babies when we move in compassion towards vulnerable moms who are being told many lies. I don't think we're going to win this one primarily on Facebook or primarily at the ballot box. I think it's going to be as we move towards those with need and as we love without conditions and as we posture our hearts and our wallets and our words to care. To not just legally protect a baby in the womb, though we must, but to come besides brave moms who have made courageous decisions with support and love and practical care. It means things like that we, we, we help promote adoptions, that, that we would have it just be known that no child is thought of as a burden or unwanted, that we even personally need to pray about things like, like foster care and how we might be part of, of, what God is, uh, of what God is doing to rescue the unborn. But not out of, out of guilt, but in compassion, seeing the women and the babies behind the numbers are real people and seeking to enter their world. Friends, it is, it is a scary thing to be caught in the wake of sin, of any sin, and feel alone. God's people know what it's like to have an advocate. These women and the unborn need one standing among them and beside them. I don't need to convince anyone of the blessing of things like foster care or adoption, and that every child is a gift, and that every woman is valued by God. Let that be clear what we proclaim to the culture. Let that be clear in this church. So maybe, may we be fueled by clarity and courage 
May we extend arms and compassion to the world around us. Fourth, we need to be mindful of the curse breaker. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. It is broken. It has been ravaged by the effect of the fall. The curse has destroyed all it touches. We live in a world where babies die. We live in a world where they die often by choice or simply by the effects of the fall that many die before they are born. We live in a world where people live in a subhuman existence, where homes are often fatherless, where taking a life is often being presented with this twisted ankle, this twisted angle of and being believed as the loving and the safe option. We live in a world where many women bravely deliver only to feel the help and the love ended at that moment that many, many women have felt devalued through their lives. Sadly, we live in a world where even churches have given the impression that some are unwelcome. Now, to be clear, God is holy and he requires holiness, but we know well holiness is the result of coming to Christ, not what we put on before we do. I hate the curse. We should hate the curse. We should hate how it ravages everything. And we should love the curse breaker. And that a day is coming where all things will be made new. And so here is our hope. Here is the hope of culture. Here is the hope for moms and vulnerable babies. Not that we stepped into their world, but that the curse breaker has come. That he has borne our sin and our shame and our brokenness. We have hope. Because God himself steps into our condition. He advocates for the defenseless. He loves the broken. He takes the place of sinner. He defeats evil. He defeats the deceiver. And he breaks the curse. And then he sends us out. The world is not the way it should be. But, but one came taking what he did not deserve to reverse the curse and bring us a new reality. Brothers and sisters, the curse breaker wins. And so our hope is not in our love but his. It's not in our victory but his. Sin destroys but, but he restores. And so we have hope in him and we point others to him. He restores our full humanity. The perfect God came as a man, the only hero, the ultimate advocate, the redeemer, the defender, the restorer. Friends, we must be mindful of the God who is not a bystander in human suffering, but who steps in. So praise God for our curse breaker. Praise God for Jesus Christ. So, these are four categories that I think we must be mindful of, that we must hold in our view. So in application, what, what is God calling you to do as we seek to defend dignity by advocating for the, for the vulnerable around us? Four thoughts I have towards this end. Number one is this. We pray. We pray and we pray for moms, 
for babies. We pray for a generation of fathers who would defend the vulnerable, not cowardly pressure and fear. But we ask God to intervene in lives. We pray that God would protect, that we would see life after life, His hand begin to reverse the effects of the curse and protect those who are vulnerable. Secondly, just say consider the way you speak. Consider the way you speak. Is it marked with love and compassion? Does it marked by, boy, I, that I can relate to struggling sinners? Or is it marked primarily by anger and self-righteousness? If someone were to read what you wrote, someone were to listen to your words, let me ask, would they want you to enter their world? I think so often in a right zeal to defend the unborn, we can unintentionally, we can unintentionally dehumanize women who have made sinful choices. We can unintentionally dehumanize those who are facing pressure at this moment because we can so often speak to a caricature that is out there that we don't speak with care and love and compassion. So we need to consider the way we speak. Third, I think we just need to recognize there are political implications to this. I think this issue should affect and influence how we vote, that we should stand for the unborn, so we should stand for good legislation that helps protect the unborn. We should, care, we should stand for those who care for moms. Do, who, do we vote for those who support those who are in the womb? Do we, do we vote for those who have policies to stand that, that would stand with women in the hardest places? But let me also say this, that we must be clear on the sanctity of life and the sacredness of life, but I also think we, we need to be united in our goal of defending human life defending the dignity of human life and, and as we touched on our, all these areas around us. And we must be united in that, but I don't think our united on that issue means uniformity in how we vote or on what strategy we think is the best way to take it, is the best way to fight the issue. I think we can have unity in our overall goal and we should and we must, and we must have that inform how we make electoral decisions. But that does not mean we have uniformity in, in, in what... For the, of what is the best strategy towards that? What is, the, what is the way that looks in every life that we need to have? That what is the best way that this defends the dignity of life and that we need to be mindful of? It's not just sort of, it's not just seeing even with this issue, there, there's, so many, there's so many things to be mindful of, like who, who supports and stands with those who would bring justice and, and, and support to communities that have been historically disadvantaged and how can we help also bring that into bear? And, and, and all these different things affect this issue. So may we be united in, in, in clearly standing for the sanctity and dignity of human life, but we may, may we not look at being united on this issue as uniformity in the best strategy and the best person to necessarily lead us culturally in this. So may it influence our vote and our action, but may we have a unity that transcends a political strategy. 
And may we see that our hope is not in a politician or legislation. And may we not speak and act as though it is. Fourth, let me just encourage you to find ways and to pray about ways to actively join the cause. So I mentioned earlier, we, we have a life fund as a church. The life fund is to do things like support a, adoptions for folks in the church that would, that would want to consider adoption. Adoption is an expensive process for most people. So it might be that God's calling you to give now so that as someone considers that, that, that resources are there and available already so as they begin the process, that, that there'd be resources for it. It's out of the life fund. We, we, give, to, we give to Wellspring. Right? We want to have resources there to be able to help those on the front lines. Encourage you, we mentioned this earlier, to go to Wellspring site and to, to, to join what they're doing, to volunteer, to, to, to help them with their fundraising. We, every fall, we, they, they, we support them in a fundraising walk, right, in the 5K, like to join these things, to be able to help them raise the resources. Wellspring does, again, a great job of, 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 of not just sort of legislatively being on the front lines, but of caring and support and doing things like fatherhood training. Might be that God's calling you to do something like considering foster care. I think this issue will require sacrifice. I think this issue will require intentionality. This issue will require prayer. But may we see this <laughs> rightly as it is the church's honor to be on the front lines of defending the vulnerable. It is our honor to proclaim the truth of the dignity of human life in a culture that wants to promote lies. It is an honor to stand with those with special needs. It is an honor to stand with those who have been historically disadvantaged. It is an honor to stand beside moms who are fatherless and husbandless, to stand with them and for them. It is an honor to be a place where, where people can walk in and bring real sin and bring real past and bring real consequences of their lives and see how Jesus has transformed everything, but there's still hurt and healing that's needed to take place. And it's an honor to stand with these people. So maybe we be moved with clarity and compassion and courage. And may we ultimately put our hope in our curse breaker. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would defend the vulnerable around us. Lord, we pray that you would more and more put us in a position to know who they are and to stand with them, that these would not be just statistics that we hear, but women and children and families in our lives. Lord, we want to stand with them. We want to advocate for them. Lord, we pray that in, in this way, living hope would get a little messy. Get a lot messy. But Lord, we pray that we would be those who you position us more and more in the front lines. And that more and more, one by one, we would see the great curse breaker come and touch life after life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.